1: It's Wednesday, August 25th, San Diego's first Chief Race and Equity Officer. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. A light, single-engine plane landed on Interstate 5 near the Del Mar Fairgrounds on Tuesday. It struck several vehicles and injured two people before it stopped. The incident forced the highway to close for four hours. Two people in the damaged cars were taken to the hospital for minor injuries. The pilot and passenger in the plane were unharmed. It's still unclear what mechanical issue with the plane caused the incident. A ribbon-cutting ceremony was held on Tuesday for the Mid-Coast Extension of San Diego's Blue Line Trolley. Here's Mayor Todd Gloria.
0: This is a jobs train for people in the South Bay who want access to the good-paying jobs up in the University Town Center area. This is an education train. This is an opportunity to get a one-seat ride to the incredible international institution that is UC San Diego.
1: The MTS Extension will provide a ride from the border to the UTC area. The official opening of the Extension is November 20. 21st. A heat warning is in effect for the Coachella Valley and the San Diego deserts from 10 a.m. today through Friday evening. Dangerous temperatures of up to 114 are expected. That heat warning has also been extended to San Gorgonillo Pass near Banning. In addition, a heat advisory has been issued for San Bernardino and Riverside counties starting tomorrow morning through Friday evening. Temperatures there are expected upwards of 104. From KPBS, you're listening To San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.
1: San Diego's first Chief Race and Equity Officer, Kim Desmond, started the job this week. The Office of Race and Equity was established by a unanimous vote by the city council last year after the murder of George Floyd. KPBS Race and Equity reporter Christina Kim caught up with Desmond on her second day on the job.
2: When you explain your job as the Chief Race and Equity Officer to your friends and family, how do you explain that job in just kind of the most simple, like, layman terms?
3: The way that I explain my job to my family and friends is important because it's the way that I live my purpose. And the way that I define it, I start out by saying we can't spell community without the word unity. So when I explain my job to my friends and family, I say to them, we got to ensure that everyone's thriving. And we have to define what thriving looks like. We have to define how we make sure that everyone has their individual needs met. We got to make sure that everyone has opportunities, everyone has resources, and everybody has a city that's responsive to their needs in their neighborhoods.
2: And how do you help that happen? What do you see as kind of like your role within this massive system to make sure that that is is exactly what is happening?
3: My role is systems work. And what that looks like is going into say we need different things in different neighborhoods. We need to make sure that everyone has access to recreation centers, make sure that everyone has access to safe roads, to repairs in their streets, make sure that everyone has access to a quality education. And so my job is to work with all of our 11,000 employees to understand how we bring action to local government services. And that means working with our employees to ensure they understand what it means to unpack systemic racism. And so equity is about ensuring that we are meeting those disparities head on.
2: So this office has never existed. It was just made in 2020. So you're coming into a new role. You're the first and you're also leading an office that hasn't existed. What are your priorities in the first 100 days and kind of what agenda are you setting for this
3: first year? Although this is the first office, offices like this are popping up around the country. And so there are colleagues that I am tapped in with around the country that is doing this work. And so I'm not alone out here. Like, we definitely are sharing best practices. And so as such, my first 100 days includes building out a race and social justice learning and development academy for city employees. We need for our all of our city employees to understand what it means to really do equitable work what it means to unpack and understand systemic racism. So that's my first priority, is to make sure that our employees are really engaging with understanding what this work means, historically and currently. The second thing I'm gonna do in the first 100 days is really get out there and listen to our people in our community. I'm gonna make myself very visible, I'm gonna go out there and listen to the individual needs in every district. It's about individualizing our services to those different districts. And so I'm gonna go out there and listen, I'm gonna be going and doing town halls, individual meetings and all types of things to ensure that I'm collecting information to inform our mayor on ways to continually build a more equitable and inclusive government. Last but not least, I also am going to go and make sure that we are looking at our budget decisions with an equity lens to ensure that we are creating an inclusive budget where all of those needs are prioritized. And so most certainly going to hit the ground in those first hundred days to ensure that all of our mayor appointees understand their role as leaders to make sure that they're leading the departments in ways that are building those outcomes.
2: What are some of the biggest obstacles you expect to face in this new role? I mean, I know you're previously the chief equity officer in Denver. You have, you know, you've been around this work. So coming now to San Diego, what obstacles are you anticipating?
3: I think the, the largest obstacle in this work is knowing that you want to change everything quickly. You want to look at and change historic inequities that have created disparities. So the hardest thing is watching those disparities. It's knowing it's going to take time. It's going to take time to chip away and organize our services and resources. The hardest thing I would say is also creating a space where everybody understands the work. Everybody understands how we define equity and what it means to lead in that way and be inclusive as a city employee.
2: After the death of George Floyd, there was a rush of investment by city leaders, by corporations to really address and invest in racial justice and equity. Do you worry that this is a temporary investment?
3: I don't think it's a temporary investment. I think that historically, this has been a problem that we have seen in terms of how institutions have not created the outcomes that we want to see. So what I see is that people are here to make sure that this work is sustained. They're here to make sure that these systems are confronting and dismantling structural racism and structural inequity that have been baked into systems for centuries. And so I wanna make sure that we are here to say that this work is not going anywhere. We see offices around the country, including in San Diego with me in this position, who we're gonna create policies to ensure that it lasts outside of me being in this position. Mayor Gloria has been very clear about that. When we leave these positions, we're gonna leave a local government that's more equitable and more inclusive. We see around the country that folks are demanding, they're demanding liberation and they're demanding equity from their local governments. And so that's not something that you can kind of just shove away based on a different administration. What do you say to
2: people who are questioning even the need for this type of office? You know, they think that maybe this is just a performative gesture from the city. How do you begin to explain the role that this office is gonna have and also regain that trust?
3: To regain the trust, I would say to folks, and sometimes individuals don't see themselves in equity. Everyone is diverse. Everyone has a unique need. Our words, our our roads serve as connection points, and to folks who are questioning this work, I would say to them, when one of us is thriving, all of us is thriving. It's about caring that in our neighborhoods, there may be different needs, and you want someone's gonna respond to your need. Do you ever think that it's like, the onus shouldn't fall on
2: people of color, on black women to fix structural racism, when the problem wasn't created necessarily by people of color in the first place?
3: We're dealing with a very complex problem and we can't expect one racial group to carry the burden and the pressure of that. As a black woman in this work, it most certainly is heavy to carry on my shoulders. And so um, I expect to partner with all of my white colleagues to ensure that they understand their work, their role in carrying forth liberatory work in local government. You know, all of us have a role in this work. And we all need to see what that role looks like. It may be different. And so I think collectively we can partner to ensure that the burden doesn't fall on just one group of folks.
2: If and when you ever leave this post, what is the number one thing that you really hope to accomplish here in San Diego as the chief race
3: and equity officer? I would say to create a lasting policy that ensures the integrity of the office remains. When we leave when I leave City Hall, when Mayor Todd Gloria leaves City Hall, we want to look back and say we have created policies that have lasting generational change. So that way, future administrations can come in and say we're going to keep the we're going to keep the ball moving. Culturally, we say we're going to keep carrying the water, and so we're going to carry the water. And then when we get to the parts where it's time for us to stop, we're going to make sure that that water continues.
2: Thank you so much for speaking with me, Kim. Welcome.
1: That was KPBS's Race and Equity reporter Christina Kim talking with San Diego's first Chief Race and Equity Officer Kim Desmond. As we draw nearer to an August 31st deadline, the U.S. military is still working to evacuate thousands from Afghanistan. KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell has more from a local school district that says their Afghan students are stuck in Afghanistan. The Cajon Valley School District started the school year
4: with a piece of their family missing. 23 of their students are stranded in Afghanistan and haven't been able to make it back to school. District officials say the families traveled to visit family for summer break and were left without a flight back home following the Taliban's takeover of Kabul.
0: They were trying to actually get back here. Um, they had flights to get back here. Um, they were going to the airport and this you know, the situation occurred.
4: Michael Serbin is the Director of Family Community Engagement at Cajon Valley. His team works with immigrant and refugee families in the district. They've made contact with families and are working with the federal government to help bring them home. He says all they have is hope.
0: We're doing everything we can and pouring out our hopes and our desires that they are able to come back. But right now all we have is hope.
4: Meanwhile, time is running out as the U.S. deadline to evacuate American citizens and Afghans from Kabul is only a week away. President Biden said on Tuesday that the U.S. is on pace to pull out by the deadline. However, lawmakers are asking national security officials to extend that date. U.S. Rep. Andy Kim says the current situation calls for an extension.
5: I, for one, believe that we should have them reconsider even for our Afghan partners, and I think that that's a tall enough responsibility uh, for us to be able to do so.
4: According to the White House, more than 4,000 U.S. citizens plus their families remain to be evacuated.
1: And that was KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell. The Del Mar City Council has taken action that could shut down the Winston School next year. It's used by students with learning differences from across San Diego County. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez has more.
0: The Winston School in Del Mar is a safe haven for children with special needs. Since 1988, the school has supported students who struggle in their neighborhood public schools. Many of them are living with physical and emotional disabilities. Dr. Dina Harris is Winston's director.
3: We really do change the trajectory of students' lives. We, we help kids achieve their dreams, be able to go on for future opportunities
0: where they might have otherwise been lost. But Winston is in danger of being closed because of a complicated joint land purchase and lease agreement with the city of Del Mar. The lease required the Winston School to provide the city with a redevelopment plan for the property, something the city said it has failed to do. Last week, the city council terminated the lease for noncompliance. As things stand, the lease runs out in 2023.
1: And that was KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. Coming up, anger over public school closures during the pandemic helped push the upcoming recall election. We'll have more on that next, just after the break. The recall campaign aimed at Governor Gavin Newsom was fueled in part by parents who were angry with how he handled public school closures during the worst months of the pandemic. KQED Politics reporter Katie Orr takes a look at the controversy and the criticisms of Newsom.
5: The mood was festive outside George Washington Carver Elementary in San Francisco's Bayview neighborhood recently. Parents clapped and cheered as students lined up to go inside for their first day back to school after summer break. If you are a third grader, Mr. Dolan and Miss Sayabong's third grader, please come Across the bay, mom Megan Bachigalupi was ecstatic to be sending her kids back to school in the Oakland Unified District.
1: Myself, my husband, and I think my kids especially are just thrilled to be back with all of their friends in a full classroom and, you know, as
5: close to normal as I think they have probably felt in a long time. Bachagalupi was extremely frustrated that her kids had to stay home last year as some private schools and a few public districts around her opened up for in-person learning. So she started Open Schools California, an organization focused on getting more kids back in the classroom. She says Newsom wasn't decisive enough when it came to education during the pandemic.
0: Words don't matter if most of the kids are still sitting at home.
1: And I think he decisively, essentially with the stroke of a pen, closed schools last spring when it was likely the right thing to do in the immediacy. But he took no decisive action to get them back up.
5: Bacigalupi says she heard from many frustrated parents, many progressive Democrats like her, who signed the recall petition. In fact, Newsom never ordered California schools to close, though the statewide stay-at-home order essentially had that effect. Kevin Gordon is president of Capital Advisors Group, which lobbies for school districts all across the state. He says many districts wanted Newsom to act unilaterally.
0: Schools that normally don't like the state infringing on their local control were actually hoping the governor would just do a statewide edict that were closing schools physically so they didn't have to wrestle with the local politics.
5: Gordon says he believes Newsom handled an unprecedented and complicated situation really well, though he says the governor got trapped between his strong support for public education and his loyalty to the labor unions that have always backed him.
0: And where they became this conflict was wanting kids to be back in school, but his own constituencies across labor not wanting to come back.
5: But the California Teachers Association's Becky Zogelman points out school's teachers and staff weren't the only people concerned about returning to in-person learning. Many parents were also hesitant.
3: When schools started to reopen, for example, you know, 70 percent of parents in Los Angeles chose to keep their kids home. And that played out in districts across the state. But
5: controversy around the way Newsom's dealing with schools keeps popping up. He's been criticized for issuing strict COVID guidelines for schools last summer and for not being more forceful about reopening schools last spring when the vaccine became available. He's taken heat for sending his own children back to in-person learning at a private school while most California public school students attended virtually. Newsom's handling of education has been a key talking point for recall candidates like Republican Assemblyman Kevin Kiley.
0: He's just saying whatever is necessary to cater
2: to the agenda of the teachers unions who want the outcome of schools being closed, and he'll give whatever rationale it takes to get there.
5: But at a recent press conference, Newsom maintained he's been following the science while also balancing a massive system.
2: We have been working with our partners in our education system, 1,050-plus school districts. We're trying to support the needs of 6.1 million public school kids. And we have been engaged to address the concerns and anxiety around reopening
0: our schools.
5: For now, schools are open across California, even as the Delta variant remains a concern. We may know more about whether that's enough to satisfy parents frustrated by Newsom's evolving positions after the recall election next month.
1: And that was KQED politics reporter Katie Orr.